0: So let's turn our attention to the word of the Lord. Ecclesiastes chapter two, starting with verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his holy word. Well, I titled the sermon this evening, A Pleasurable Providence. It's at the very end of Ezekiel chapter 2. And just a reminder, at the, at the outset of chapter 2 in the first 11 verses, we have the problem of pleasure. Solomon pursues all sorts of pleasures in this life. Bodily pleasure, he has bold projects, but he realizes that those pursuits are barren Then he has an inward turn beginning in verse 12. And in verses 12 to 17, we see the limits of earthly wisdom, where wisdom, yes, is helpful, but it's also in a way discouraging because we see the foolish prosper and we see sometimes the wise come to ruin. This morning, we looked at verses 18 to 23. I called it uh, thorns and thistles, a field guide to work. And we considered the anger, anguish and annoyance of work. Well, this passage before us this evening offers a solution to all our woes by encouraging us to find, yes, to find delight in this world, to enjoy this world, but only only as an expression of God's heavenly favor for us, his children. He made the world and he has given us all things richly to enjoy. So I'm going to consider this passage under three headings. Hopefully we have them up here. The good life, that's the first sentence of verse 24. A great gift, the second sentence of verse 24 and verse 25. And then finally, A Generous Providence, verse 26. And those are the three headings. So let's get started. The first is the good life. Look at verse 24, the first sentence. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Well, let me say two things that this passage isn't. First of all, it's not hedonistic. He's not saying that the only thing to enjoy in life is pleasure. After all, he's just said in chapter 2, in the first three verses, he recognizes the limits of bodily pleasure. He recognizes the limits of bodily pleasure, and he has the bold projects, but realizes That they're barren pursuits. So he's not saying, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die, right? He's not being hedonistic and he's not being nihilistic. So, nihilism is that you kind of embrace the nothing. And why is he not being nihilistic? Well, I hate to say it this way, but he's not being nihilistic because he's really annoyed, right? If you're a nihilist, you're supposed to just kind of give up on everything. But he, Solomon hates life, verse 17. He hates his job, verse 18. And he finds frustration in his pursuits. So he's not a hedonist saying it's all about pleasure, nor is he a nihilist saying we should just renounce everything. Everything is absurd. He is complaining in verses 18 to 23 about anger, anguish, And annoyance over his work. And then, in this first sentence of verse 24, he returns to the simple pleasures of life. The simple pleasures of life. Biblical Christianity, contrary to its reputation in some quarters, delights in the pleasures of life delights in the pleasures of life. Eat and drink with pleasure. Enjoy the work that you have to do. Contentment in this life is not something that a Christian should seek to avoid. First Timothy 6, 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. There is something about Having food and clothing and having a job, even a menial job, even a somewhat boring job that brings great satisfaction. Arthur Brooks is now at Harvard, but before he was at Harvard, he was at Syracuse and he did meta studies of happiness. And one of the things that he learned was that all the happiness studies um, that one common theme was earned success earned success. It is a good thing to work hard and to accomplish something. And if you feel that way, then that is a good thing. Now, H.L. Mencken, the uh, snarky journalist of the early 20th century, he defined Puritanism as, quote, the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. But Mark David Hall, in his book, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, talks about actual New England Puritans. These are our theological ancestors. Actual New England Puritans loved the good life. They drank beer, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I mean, part of me thinks that's because the water was so scary that the beer was safe. They loved brightly colored clothes and they were not puritanical about matters of the heart. Mark David Hall writes, quote, James Maddock was expelled from First Church of Boston. He was expelled from the church for denying conjugal fellowship to his wife. The Puritans recognized the good life. God has given us Richly all things to enjoy. There is something to be said about having the pleasures of food and drink, the enjoyment of your work, the the camaraderie of like-minded people. In 1938, Harvard scientists chose uh, 268 sophomores, 268 sophomores, and they began a research study. And among this, this group of sophomores was none other than John F. Kennedy. And there were all sorts of other men. And as of 2017, though, of the original 268 sophomores, 19 were still alive. I think they were all in their 90s. And of course, they were all men because Harvard at the time did not admit female undergraduates. Now, early on in the study... If you think about the kind of mid-20th century view of things, they were very deterministic and behavioristic. And so they measured people's skulls. You know, they were trying, they, they wanted to know whether or not you were from good stock. They they even looked at your handwriting as clues to what kind of life you would live, how long you would live. You know, if you had smart and healthy ancestors, the idea was then you yourself would be smart and healthy. Well, maybe not. Being active, not being an alcoholic, having a stable weight and a stable marriage, these were the things that they found over time actually suggested whether or not you were going to live a long time. One one researcher said that satisfying relationships at age 50 actually predict longevity better than your cholesterol levels. Better than your cholesterol levels. You can have the best genes in the world, but still die young. You can be weak and feeble as a child and outlast us all. There is something about the good life. Christian, do you know that God wants you to enjoy the pleasures of food and drink, to delight in your work, to have fun. God wants you to do that. He wants you to enjoy life. If he gives you good food and you turn up your nose at it, don't don't do it. Enjoy what God has given you to do. That's the first point, is the good life. Now, if we just stop there and we say, this is all that life is for, is to eat and drink and be merry and to build our big projects, we will be totally empty. If we make our work an idol, the idol itself will displease us. And so... The secret to contentment is not to enjoy the good gifts, but to recognize the giver. It's a great gift. Verse 24, the second sentence. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Verse 25, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. You do the work, but your daily bread and your enjoyment from your labor. Or a gift from God himself. Notice how his argument is, is posed as a question. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Verse 25. The answer? No one. No one. If you try to enjoy the good gifts without the giver you ultimately will have all of the emptiness and frustration that we've seen all throughout chapter two. You will, you'll, build the big, you'll have the big dream, you'll build the big project, and you'll either fail, and that's disappointing, or what's even worse, you'll succeed. And you'll start thinking, as Solomon does, am I going to leave this to a fool? Is this going to be squandered? And if you look at world history, the answer is yes. Eventually, somebody will ruin or destroy the little thing that you have spent your life building. But we can't be nihilistic about it and just give up. Because life itself is a great gift. Life is a gift From God, our creator, who has given us all things richly to enjoy life is a gift, which is why we are so sad when life is extinguished. The pleasures of food and drink are great gifts, which is why we seek them when we are hungry or thirsty and we have a delight. God has so blessed us that we have a delight in the things of this life that exceed, that exceed the satisfaction of our mere necessities, right? There is a pleasure that we have in food and in work that we would still do even if we didn't have that much pleasure, right? If uh, if if consuming food was like regulating my heartbeat, which mercifully I don't have to be mentally aware of, but if it was where I just kind of had to regulate my food intake, then I would do it to stay alive. But it wouldn't be so varied and so pleasurable and so rich. And this is a gift from a good, gracious, kind, and loving God. It is astonishing to me that the same man who says in chapter 1, verse 13, it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Can also say in the passage before us in verse 24 and 5 that these good gifts are from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment. But it's not really astonishing. It just depends upon your perspective. If your perspective is my work, you know, what, what, I, what I do, my performance, and what I consume equals my whole life, then you will always be empty. It doesn't matter who you are. And probably the worst thing that can happen to you is for you to have success after success after success. Because eventually, when you've achieved the highest level of success, you will realize that it's all a house of cards and empty. But the one who makes God his sure foundation, the one who says everything I've got to do is a free gift of God's wonderful grace, that person Can be happy even if, even if the average person in the world would look at him and say, loser. God looks at him and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. The average person in the world doesn't even notice him. But he knows that he is loved by his creator. Don't take my word for it. Take the word of John. Eric Yang uh, interviews people. I've not looked at any of his other videos, but he has this great video where uh, he interviews people in kind of random walks of life. And I don't know if you've seen it, but it's well worth watching. I think I've watched it three times and you know that I'm not a TV person. So it's, for me, it's, that's like a thousand times. But Eric Yang interviews a man named John this summer. And John makes 400 to $800 a week digging through other people's trash in New York City. He grew up in Queens, he tells the interviewer, and he met his wife there, and they had three children. But then he says that he he messed up and uh, things didn't go well. He smuggled drugs and people too. And he received a 10-year prison sentence. When asked by Eric Yang... Do you regret anything? John says, oh yeah, I regret everything. Lost my wife and kids. I didn't get to see any of the grandchildren be born. I missed a lot of stuff, man. When asked about the pain, John said, what am I going to do? I got no more tears. I'm all cried out. He says he can only be joyful and laugh because he says it's soon going to end. I'm 60. But then John quotes Ephesians chapter one, verse four, from memory about God having chosen him before the foundation of the world. Before Genesis one, one, John says God chose him. His account of his conversion during his incarceration is marvelous. I just felt led in my spirit to say, Okay, I think you're telling the truth. I agree. I'll accept. And then John says, He, that is God, knew I would pick up cans one day before it ever happened. That scripture helps me to realize. That when I fail, you know, don't please or do the things of God. He still loves me. He still cares for me because he chose me in Christ. He seated me at his right hand in heavenly places. I'm seated there right now, whether I deserve it or not. Friends. You can literally have a job where you dig through other people's trash to make a living, but you can be full of joy and mirth knowing that the one who loves you chose you and knew that one day you would be digging through other people's trash to make a living. But you can have The most celebrated job in the world. You can make more money than you could possibly spend in your life. Have more fame than anybody else in the history of the world and yet be empty. Yet be empty because you're looking to the pleasures of this life, the pleasures of creation To give you meaning and fulfillment when only your creator can do that. Perhaps the greatest enemy of joy is ingratitude. And so we should reframe, like not not gloss over the hard things of life. But we should reframe the difficulties of this life. To think about the good gifts of our creator who loves us. Not to be ungrateful, but to be grateful. If your work seems like a judgery, praise God, you have a job to do. If the children are up through the night, then thank the Lord that he has given you children to care for. If you are sore from physically exhausting labor... Then praise God that you have strength to do the work. If you have unresolved conflict in your life, if you have broken relationships, then thank God that he has solved your greatest problem, your broken relationship with him. Yes, we have thorns and thistles. We have disappointments and hardships. I am not trying to gloss over the real difficulties of life. But we also have food. We also have clothing. And with these, we will be content. So the good life, a great gift. And finally, verse 26, a generous providence, a generous providence. Verse 26 For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Ultimately, I think what this is saying is that ultimately at the end, the great frustration of chapter 2, will be answered. How? Under the aspect of eternity, under, under the broad picture of God's vision, the wisdom, knowledge, and joy of the righteous, that those who are wise and knowledgeable and joyful will receive all that the wicked have been gathering and collecting. They will have a true vanity and a striving after wind. But we, those who please God, will find our deepest longings satisfied and we are made for glory that we cannot possibly comprehend. Egypt was a great civilization, one of the greatest civilizations in the history of the world. But in Exodus chapter three, when the Lord appears in the burning bush to Moses, having heard the cry of his people, he says, I'm going to use you, Moses, to take my people out of Egypt. And what does he say at the end of the chapter? You shall plunder The Egyptians, how the Egyptians have gathered wealth together, but they have gathered that wealth together for your benefit. And so, friends, we are winning. We are on the winning side. Yes, it could be that 4511 West Weddington, uh, 500 years from now, will be a mosque or a temple of Zeus or whatever. But we should not think in weak and pathetic terms about what the Lord is doing. God is drawing us to himself and he has made us for a new heaven and a new earth where we shall plunder the Egyptians yet again. At the very end of the Bible in Revelation Chapter 21, when John sees this beautiful picture of a new heaven and a new earth, in verse 22, talking about this new Jerusalem that the Lord himself builds, this is what he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I don't know how the Lord is going to do this, but I do know that what Revelation 21 is telling me is that anything that is good, true, or beautiful, if anything is good, true, or beautiful, it will be in the new Jerusalem. And there are people who are laboring and creating things that may well end up in the new Jerusalem, even though they don't. But we who pursue the Lord with thanksgiving and joy and gratitude, and as he gives us wisdom and knowledge that too, then we will receive the inheritance of the nations. So we have nothing to fear, nothing to be afraid of. Ultimately, though, yes, we do have trouble in this life. Jesus tells us, take heart. I've overcome the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would stir us up, that you would give us joy and thanksgiving. Lord, in a congregation this size, I know that there are terrors and heartache, disappointment and discouragement, even despair, anger. Lord, we, we cast these things before you, our cares, knowing that you care for us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, for the sake of the Lord Jesus, that you would do great work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.